Okay, there are times when you have a guest and they're so amazing that you have to just keep going. So this is Richard Solomon. Welcome if you're listening to us because this is a bonus or the second hour or whatever this is going to be. Welcome to Taking Care of Business, uh, Out of the Question, and My Father's Place Radio. And I'll tell you, we're, we're just kind of reminiscing about the record industry, uh, billboard, uh, <laughs> 45 adapters, 33s, concert tickets, uh, you know, we, we didn't even get to things like Ticketmaster or when they went into the record stores. I mean, there was so much we didn't even cover. And yet, um, if you missed the first hour, it's definitely up on all the, the, the platforms, podcast, uh, iTunes, uh, the whole the whole schmear. It's all out there. So uh, if you can, join us. I'm sure you'll, you'll love this segment and circle back. Uh, you can always uh, send us an email. So Scott, so Scott Sherrill is a uh, veteran of the music uh, industry. And of, uh, specifically of the record business, when actually when it was a record industry, you know. Um, so so we were, we were talking in the, the prior show about great moments or great fun experiences. And you talked about concerts. Do you remember some of the concerts that you saw? Oh, boy. We saw so many. It's, it's easier to go backwards and say who we didn't see. We didn't see the Beatles. We, I never got a chance to see the Who. But we saw... Yeah, Clapton and the Stones, and, and, and we saw uh, the Rolling Stones in 1975, maybe one of the best shows. If, it's hard to come up with what's the best show you ever saw. But they were so at their peak. Ronnie Wood had just joined the band. Eric Clapton came out and did two encores with them. It was fabulous. Zeppelin. Um, we saw Elton John, uh, the the Goodbye Yellow Brick Road tour. Um, I saw Timely, uh, one of Queen's first uh, concerts in America. Uh, they were unknown. They did have a couple of albums out that hadn't sold yet. Uh, they were on the Mata Hoople Farewell Tour, and we saw them at the Eurus Theater uh, on Broadway in Manhattan, and they blew us away. They blew us away. And it was a perk in the record business. You know, I worked for a small chain, so we had the salesmen from the labels would come in, and we would smoke a little pot, and you got to know these it's legal guys. Now. <laughs> you, get, it, it, you know, if you see this this uh, movie that I was telling you about, uh, Tower, about Tower Records, Rogers, all yeah. things must pass. Um, you see that that this was part of the business. It, it was always part of the record business, uh, and and so um, the the salesmen from the labels would come in and they would just chuck your seats. Yeah, bad company, foreigner. I mean, everybody that was out at the time, they would come in and they would just give you tickets. They don't do that anymore in the record business because the tickets are so valuable that they don't give them away. So now, now when you got the tickets. Were these like the front row tickets or were these the nosebleeds? These were the best seats in the house. Wow. They were their their personal seats. So so if you were seeing WEA was a big uh, rock label. It, it encompassed Warner Brothers and Atlantic and Elektra and Asylum. And they had a huge roster of acts. And it, it wasn't front row on the floor because those really weren't the best seats in the house. The best seats in the house was one level up, front row, yeah. right next to the stage, first box, and and we sat in, in in the best seats in the house for every show that we went to. So much that I can't go to concerts anymore. 
at a place like Madison Square Garden because either you're going to shell out a thousand bucks to go see the show, which is out of the question for me. I used to go for nothing, so I'm not going for a thousand bucks. Or you could sit all the way, you know, in a, in a terrible seat, and you know you're spoiled, so there's no going back. But we saw everybody. Wow. Um, do you have a big time? Concert T-shirt collection? Nope, nope. But I got a big vinyl collection. How, how big is your collection right now? It, it's, it, it's hundreds, thousands. It, yeah, it's thousands. Wow. You know, thousands of LPs, perfect condition, jackets on everything. Thousands of forty fives, thousands of CDs, and thousands of cassettes. Do you huge re- collection? Do you remember there was a store in City Island? I don't remember this. I I, I don't. I mean, I know City there, Island there pretty was a well. Store. And it was like a museum. It was unbelievable. It was this record store, and it was just wall-to-wall of thousands of records. And I know it closed, but I, I remember just it was just an unbelievable place because it was one of those holdouts for a long time. Yeah, well, you know? City and Island, it, all I remember was, I think, Sammy's Fish Box. It, well, there's only one road in. And, <laughs> yeah, you know, one road in, one yeah, road out. And, you know, um, Talk about the, the whole Billboard magazine thing. Was that a tool for you? Is this something that you had to use as a reference? Material? It was the Bible. What did, what did it, what kind of information did it provide from you, and what did you extrapolate out of it? Well, it was a weekly, so obviously it had the weekly charts. So that, so that's telling you what's selling nationwide. There was also a radio play section. So as a retailer, it was very important for you to know what. The radio stations in your area are playing, what's in heavy rotation, what's in lighter rotation, what's new that they're throwing on the radio. And the opposite of that, the radio stations, if you had a good store, the radio stations would call you and and you would report. That's what they called it. You would report. They would call you every week and they would say, what are you selling? And you would tell them what, what's selling and what's new that's breaking out, and they would now add that. So you worked hand in hand. The Billboard magazine was, was a Bible. It, it told you industry news. Uh, the labels are thinking about raising the price. The labels are thinking about um, doing away with cassettes, or they're thinking about doing away with eight tracks, or they're going to be bringing out this new configuration, and it, it's read by a laser, and and the disc is just three inches, and this and that. It was the Bible for everything. There wasn't really anything that was newsworthy and important in the record business that wasn't in Billboard magazine. And, and there was... There was a, 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 another trade paper that people forget uh, that was that was big for us when we operated in Queens, and it was called Cashbox, and that was the trade paper for the jukebox industry. And wow. the jukebox industry was a very integral part of the record business. So so they had their charts, and, and they were similar, but they were never identical. Uh, there were songs that would play big in a jukebox, and... And you would sell them, but they didn't necessarily get represented quite as high in the Billboard magazine because that was nationwide sales. And there were a lot of records back in the earlier days that were regional hits. And so the Billboard was indispensable 
you had as soon as you were opening up a store one of the first things you did was sign up for your subscription for billboard for that particular location you couldn't you couldn't operate without it what were the the magazines that you remember for the consumers i mean it was like tiger beat what else was there oh um Rolling Stone, yeah, Rolling, obviously, yeah. obviously was really big. People don't remember that Rolling Stone started as a, uh, like a newspaper. It didn't start as, as like a magazine. It started as a newspaper. Um, uh, let's see. I'm sorry, I'm coming up with a blank. All right, be, well, as far well, as the magazine. Well, well you're going to shift back. Cashbox and Billboard. All right, so. Uh, Moon Cursor Records, uh, one of City Island's former attractions from 1991 to 2006 was Moon Cursor Records, a bastion for obscure vinyl, 33s, 45s, and 78s. The store had a collection of over 100,000 albums and singles, as well as over 30,000 piano rolls. The place worked as a museum of recording, the walls, displays of movie posters, music memorabilia, and musical instruments and antiques hanging from the rafters. The owner, Robert, Roger Roberge, could usually be found in his rocking chair seven days a week. Uh, you, want to tell you, you want to tell your listeners what is a piano roll? You tell them, because, yeah. It, a piano roll, they, they used to I, make it was the first, I guess that's the first analog recording. Yeah. Yeah. It, 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 was, it was a roll of paper that had holes punched in it, and you would put it in a, in a player piano, and the earlier ones you pumped with your feet. Two pedals. <laughs> Underneath the keyboard of a piano, and you pumped it, and and that turned the piano roll, and it was a player piano, and, and it played that music. Uh, I I would say that those are pretty collectible right now. But you see, this guy had this great inventory. At that time, as the record business was slowly dying, and with all of that going for him, he couldn't make it. Yeah, it's interesting. I wonder what came first, the piano roll or the punch card. Because they're sort of the same idea. Yeah. So a good question. So according to Wikipedia, a piano roll is a music storage medium used to operate a piano player. It's a roll of continuous paper with perforation, holes punched into it. The perforations represent note control data. The, the roll moves over a reading system known as a tracker bar, and the playing cycle is triggered when a perforation crosses the bar and is read. Um, it was introduced in 1896. How's that? That's so I guess they beat the the punch card. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> By a couple of days. Uh, piano rolls were in continuous mass production from 1896 to 2008 and are still available today. Oh, you know, there was there was a, a landmark record store, which it really is a shame that the, land, it, that the business got so bad that even the landmark stores couldn't make it. The Tower Records. The J&R Music World that you were talking about on yeah. Park Row. There was a landmark record store, Colony Records. I remember Colony Records okay. in Manhattan. Colony oh, Records yeah. was on Broadway. And so they were a resource for, I'm sure for piano rolls, a huge resource because they were in the theater district of sheet music and original cast albums and original soundtrack albums. And it was... A really sad day when they closed up. It was like hard to believe. You you scratched your head. You said, "How could how could Colony Records go out of business?" And it's a shame that you know that nobody could save it. 
that nobody stepped in to save it. Like I, I heard on the news in the past couple of days that uh, uh, Lynn Manuel, what is his name? The guy from Hamilton. I don't know. But anyway, the guy okay. from Hamilton. The, the guy from Hamilton uh, is stepping in to save a famous bookstore that's in the theater district that, that is a resource for the theater people. And, and it's a shame that nobody could do that for Colony Records. Now, here's a New York Times article from 2012. Music Shop recognizes somber tune, its final coda. And it talks about Colony Records. 64 years in business. 64 years. Well-known. Great location. Unbelievable inventory. Unbelievable history. And poof, it's gone one day. You know what I remember about Colony Records? They had a lot of autographed pictures. And, yeah. You know, and I was like, you know. Right on Broadway. You know, it was like, it was like oh, yeah, you know, uh, Mick Jagger or whatever. And you'd be like, wow. And, and, and the prices that they sold were really not that outrageous given that it was Manhattan and, and a lot of the stuff was more unique. You know, I guess they had a lot of show music, too. You know, Broadway was, uh, you know, a very big place for the record industry, the music industry. You had the Brill Building, where, where all of the, the writers, Carol King, Neil Diamond, y y all of these people came out of uh, the Brill Building. It, it, so when, when, when a store like that goes out of business, you know, the handwriting is on the wall for the regular guy. You know, it's interesting. It it was so Americana. It really was. Yeah. The the whole record store, the record buying experience. These were this was America. You know, the Colony Records, the JNR Music World. Everybody went to them at some point, or you either bought people music as a gift, or you bought something for yourself, or you even you wanted you had an hour to to do something in between. I don't know. When I when I go down to court in Manhattan. Um, sometimes you have a morning court appearance, sometimes you had an afternoon court appearance, and there was like a gap. What better place to go than the JNR Music Record, you right. know, JNR Music World for an hour? Right. Walk around, you know, especially in the winter, it's cold, it's nasty, it's snowing. Go inside, they're playing music anyway. You walk yep. around, you look around, and. Great, great, a great place to go. Colony Records, to give you an example of how America has changed, I don't think for the better, but. You be the judge. We would take our kids into the city. We would hang around. We would go with the Colony Records and flip around and take a look at this and take a look at that. And like you said, the autographed pictures and who was this and who was that. Now, these kids, they go to Times Square. What do they go to? The M&M store. I mean, how is that better? It's not, you know, when you think about it. Like you said, the neighborhoods, you know, on the Upper West Side was Tower Records, and the Village was Tower Records. Oh, uh, the Village had hundreds of stores over the years. You know, and then there was, uh, you know, there was some stores, I think it was, was it on Sullivan Street, all by, sort of by NYU. Um, they they basically sold a lot of bootlegs, you yeah, know. Still a few stores down there. Yeah, and remember there was Bleaker Bob's? Bleaker Bob's. Let's talk about Bleaker Bob's. That was probably a well-known place for a yeah, long time. Yeah, they hung Bob's. on. Downstairs records. There was, there were a lot of, you know, particularly in the city. Like I was saying to you before, yeah, you know, you knew the chains, but there were just tons of independent record stores. Tons of independent record stores. Great. They had their niche. They didn't carry everything. They carried what they were known for, whatever that might be, and it was, it was, it was great. It was great. There still are some stores down there. 
down by NYU. Well, you know what? We got to keep them all alive uh, because uh, it really, it really was a an experience. That's what it was. It was an experience, and that you know, the bookstore is basically a thing of the past because even the current bookstores are selling other things, right? Uh, to prop themselves up. Um, a number of different bookstore chains have gone out completely. Borders, Books A Million, you know, yep. are, are all gone. Um, the, the, the record stores are all gone. Radio Shack is yeah. gone. You know, yep. all, you know all, all, the, all the people who stole stereo, you know, sold stereo equipment. Um, yeah, you know, things change. That's, that's part of life. But, you know, it's a shame when certain things go. It was funny. I remember there were people who were like, we used to call them the stereo gods, but these were the people who had the highest end stuff. They had Technics turntables. They had Morantz equalizers. They had Harmon Garden speakers. They they wouldn't they wouldn't just buy like one thing. Yep. They, they had to buy. Well, Technics had the best turntable, but they didn't have the best this. Right. So you had the to go to components. Right. So they had to buy this stuff. And I remember you had to buy Maxell cassettes. And you had to get the ones that were like the better grade. Sure. You know, and I remember there was BASF. Remember BASF? Sure. Um, sure. TDK. Yeah, there was TDK. There was Memorex. Yep. You know, there was all these brands. And uh, you always wanted to record on the really good stuff. And I remember. And it made a difference. Oh, yeah. And I remember when you recorded sort of like, you know, if you had like a, a record player and you just sort of recorded loosely in the air from the speaker onto like a tape player. It just, it wasn't good. And then, and then when you got the stereo components, you were able to record, record directly from the turntable to the cassette. And I remember that was a big deal. And then I remember that you got a dual deck where you can record from one cassette to another. And I thought that was, you know, a, a, the big things you always worried about hiss. Um, Cause sometimes hiss came out on the tape. And then I remember you remember reel to reel? I do remember reel. Yeah, reel to reel was, you know, it, it never was really big commercially, but the the sound was was phenomenal, and you couldn't beat it. A TAC reel to reel was really a great, great sounding system. Yeah, before remember we were talking about Betamax. Look right behind you. That's that that's a Betamax. Uh, that's a, 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 is that a that's a professional? I guess I, I, it's got to be the station's uh, equipment, but yeah. Yeah, because Betamax was, a, they, they definitely say it was a better system, and a lot of professional uh, like TV people used never, it. Yeah. never changed over from Betamax, but Betamax was first. Uh, I think it was Sony, right? Sony, Sony Betamax, came out with yes. the Betamax, and I think JVC was the pioneer. I think JVC and RCA in a joint venture did the VHS, the VHS and the VHS yeah. just... You, you never know why does something take off when the other one is better. It's hard to it's hard to explain. All right. VHS stands for Video Home System. I didn't even know that. Developed by uh, JVC. It was released in 1976 and in the United States in early 1977. Interesting. And, and the beta was out a couple of years before that. And And – you know, interesting, like everything electronic when it first started. I think the first Betamax machine was $2,000 back in those days. I, I think I remember that. Was I like re- was like buying a car. I think I remember, weren't, weren't like the first VHS 
things that you would record off the TV, weren't they like about two grand? Yeah. You know? And then now now they're like 50 bucks. I know. I know. <laughs> if you even buy them. Same with the CD players. Yeah. CD players came out. They were a couple of thousand bucks. And now $39. Well, you know what's sort of interesting? When the Disc Man came out. Do you remember the Disc I Man? Did. Um, in fact, Epi, who owns my father's place, has a disc man, and he walks around with the CDs and he listens to them. Okay. You know? But I, I remember when the Walkman came out and the disc man came right, out. Right, the Walkman was, was the cassette. Correct. was the cassette player with the headphones. Now, what was interesting was when I was in law school, I, there was a, a radio show that I really liked to listen to locally, and I would always miss it because I was in class. So I bought, um, a, I guess a, a, a Walkman type of machine. It was a different brand. It had an equalizer. It was very, very sophisticated. And what I would do is in class, I would put it on mute um, somehow or I'd plug the thing. I would record it. And then when I, when I got back to you know, my apartment in D.C., I would then listen to the show because in those days, there was no way of taping or anything like that. Okay. So I brought the equipment with me, kept it under my desk. Nice. <laughs> nice. Recorded it. smart. <laughs> and I still, have, I still have the cassettes to this day. Oh, you, you still know? have those cassettes? I still have those cassettes to this day. You know? Very nice. You know, we were talking before about CDs and, and how they're phasing out the CDs in the cars. That, to me, is a tremendous loss. Oh, you know, talking about That's like almost, you know, the record store was somewhere out there, and that was a loss. But, but the car is very personal. You know, think about how much you live in the car. You know, a lot of people eat in the car. You take kids to school in the car. You go to college in the car. You commute to the car. You, you, you drag all kinds of stuff around in the car. And we spend a lot of time in this country in cars. And what do you do, especially at nighttime? You, know, you can't talk on the phone all the time. But but what do we do? You know, at no, nighttime, they, they, they listen, listen to the music from the phone into whatever system you have in the car, there's still a music system in the car. It just doesn't play CDs. So it's got a radio. A lot of them have XM, uh, Sirius. But these younger people, they don't want to pay for the music. So they don't even want to pay for a subscription to XM once it expires from the car. They Which just want to play. Yeah. They want to play the stuff that they know. I don't, I don't even know where they get exposed to the new stuff on their phone and if you take the money out of an industry, what's left of the industry? Well, you can't compete with free. You can't compete with free. No, no. Why, yeah. why would you buy it if you could get it for free? I forgot which artist said it. I think it was, I think it was Paul Stanley of Kiss. He said, you know, I, I'm writing really good stuff now, but I don't know if anybody's going to bother buying it or listening to it. It's sad. You know, because, you know... It, one of my questions, and I never really got a good answer, is why why won't they play any new music on the radio anymore? Why are we stuck with just you know the classic rock, and they only play like in many commercial outlets? I'm not that's not everybody, but I know this is a broad generalization. But you kind of feel like a lot of radio stations have very tight lists. It's always Freebird and Sweet Home Alabama and Rhiannon and The Chain and the same five hundred songs. It's the same songs over and over again, and you it almost you almost ask yourself. I know Leonard Skinner had more than two songs. <laughs> you know, this, part, this part doc, of, they've been around for fifty years. They had documentaries. Part of it is that the radio stations are owned by big corporations that own radio stations coast to coast. Hundreds of radio stations. 
they have a program manager who's 28 years old. So what does he know about Leonard Skinner? He knows Freebird. So if you put 10 Leonard Skinner albums in front of him, it, it's sort of meaningless. Yeah, he might know a handful of songs. It's like if somebody said to you and I, um, I want you to host a station that's going to play music from the 40s and the 30s. So, yeah, we would know a few hundred of those songs. Yeah, but, but, you know. Take the A-train. <laughs> right. right. So you, you would know the songs that you know by Glenn Miller and the songs that you know by Benny Goodman, but you wouldn't really know it the way, say, my father would have known it because that was his music. So, so that's a big part of the problem. They don't have people that really know that music. So they all, if, if you turn on a classic rock station, for the most part, they play the same 500 or uh, I'll stretch it and say maybe a thousand and they all play that same thousand it's true you, you know a lot of times you know you travel around America and you listen to quote the classic rock station and whether you're in Florida or New York or Pennsylvania or DC or California you, you, you feel like you know you really haven't left uh, it, it, it could be owned by the same company and it could have the same programming director and, and what's sad is, uh, you know, you kind of feel like bored. Yeah. And, and you know that you know that the inventory's deep. I mean, there was the '60s, the '70s, the '80s, the '90s. You know, into the 2000s. There's all this great music now. What's kind of cool, um, you know, is that my father's place kind of features all these artists, and they're at least new to me. Uh, Laura Hope and the Arctones and Taz and all these other people and Russ Alexander with the Hitman Blues Band and you're like wow Invista Hill and Blue Race and you know but but they're not getting played on the radio right you know luckily I get to bring them here <laughs> play their music Jay Cobb and you know you talk to them and they got great songs they got great stories Jay Cobb told me a story he was in the 70s he was motorcycle riding and he kind of was in a valley I think it was upstate there's this cloud formation. It looked like a woman from, like, from the 1700s. And he drove through it, and it didn't disperse. And it was very cold. And it was sort of like one of those metaphysical, you know, paranormal experiences. And he wrote about it in a song. I think it was like The Ghost of the Highway 54 or something like that. And, you know, when you talk to different people about the songs that they write or whatever, the, Laura Hope and the Arctones have a really funny song called I love you more. I love you more today than yesterday because yesterday you really pissed me off. <laughs> and it's, it's a great tune, and you we know. could all relate. <laughs> and uh, and they got a great sound. And Taz is he's going to be amazing. He's just going to be an incredible you know See, talent. You know, Epi that was always Epi's thing was exposing people to new artists and so when you see the roster of people that played at the old my father's place, you're like, wow, everybody played there. But most of them played there when they were nobody. Yes, You yes. know, when they were up and coming and people didn't know who they were. So, so who knows where these people go. But, but I'm not sure that the younger people are going to be interested in a guitar player that sounds like Hendrix. You and I will like that. But my three kids, I'm not sure they're going to say, wow, that kid is a great guitar player. Let me go buy his album. Or let me go download his album, or whatever they do. So you know, it's true. Like Taz really is just a great artist, and he's got—he's he, a good kid. He's a really nice guy, and he's got so much future in front of him. And he's played in his young life. 
he's played with Buddy Guy and the all people from the Allman Brothers. That's, in, that's and, incredible. And, and you know, um, you'll see him on YouTube, and you'll be like, "Wow!" I mean, he's young, and look what he's done thus far. You know? Right, right, um, and and those people can really appreciate an artist like that and their audiences. Right, the, right. The, yeah. the people that, that 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 that's good exposure for him because those are the people that are going to see somebody like Buddy Guy are going to love a guy like that. Exactly, exactly. So, and we've got to probably wrap this up here, but what, what else would you like to share either from Billboard or Memories or that we didn't really touch upon? Well, yeah. nothing. Uh, I, I think we touched on, on anything I could think of. But did I, I did think, we squeeze everything out of lemon so there's only dust coming out of it? Well, <laughs> you, you know what? If, if I recharge and I think of more... More well, things, I'll, you, I'll, come back. I'll, I'll be in touch. But I, I did want to say what I had said to you before. You know, I started in the record business 1973, and this is 2019, if you can believe that, 2019. Uh, so I've been pretty much nonstop, made my living in the record business all of those years, close to 50 years. And I feel blessed and, and so lucky to have been able to do that because, you know, music is is, is one of the great things that, that, you know, we as human beings get to really enjoy. And, and the fact that I could be in this business and earning my living all of these years, has it just been, it's been fantastic. So are, are you still in the music business now? You know, I am. I still have, you know, one foot in it, but I'm pretty much semi-retired at this point. I have uh, a little rack jobbing business that I do where I set up a rack of CDs in mostly in car washes uh, throughout the island. Uh, you, you might see a stand. If you see the stand and it says the music man on there, that's me. Just to keep my hand in there. It's all I know. It's all I've done my whole adult life. And it's, and it's, it's nice to be able to continue to operate and and meet people and 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 talk to people about the music business. Are the big chain stores like um, Target and Walmart? Are they selling any more CDs? Or that's very very limited. Because I, I noticed I mean, that their their inventory keeps shrinking. You know, it used to be yeah, a couple aisles, then it was one aisle, then it was right. just sort of Christmas music. Or you, you, you saw last year, Best Buy which one was one of the last stores that was carrying a pretty decent inventory, and, and they went out. So, you know, why would they go out of something when they have it? They went out of it because it just wasn't worth it to carry it anymore. People just aren't buying music anymore. They, they just they, they don't want to buy it. So uh, you go into Walmart. I, I mean, Walmart, your average Walmart, maybe they have, you know, 300, 400 CDs on display, nothing particularly great, no great selection of anything. But it's an impulse thing. If you happen to be in there looking at big screen TVs and you see a CD, you'll grab it. I'm sure they're selling it. They have so many stores that if you add it all together, they're selling some. I still sell some. You know, we, we sell older stuff. Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, Janis Joplin, a lot of Billy Joel's, you know, stuff that I know that we're going to sell here on Long Island because I'm doing it all my life. So I know what the customer here that would buy a CD, what they would want to buy. But it's 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 slow. It's but it still gives me something to do, and so 
I, I keep myself out there and, and I enjoy it. So that's really what it is. It's like it's like a hobby and maybe I make a few shekels, you know. So so what is the top fifty? Like do you have your your own, you know, Scott's hot one hundred? <laughs> yeah. Well so that that's that's what? actually that's actually what I handle. When I put a rack in a store, I put in a hundred CDs and it's a hundred different titles. And 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 those titles sometimes they vary, but a lot of times it's it's the same stuff. So, you Is know, like greatest uh, hits. Uh, yeah, greatest hits compilations. Some of the old strong albums. You know, uh, uh, a Carol King greatest hits. Uh, um, Janis Joplin greatest hits. Uh, Simon and Garfunkel's greatest hits. Stuff that that you know and you know it's going to sell. Eventually, it's going to move out. I sell. Believe it or not. Right now, very well. Janie Americans, I got a good one. And Johnny Maestro and the Brooklyn Bridge. You know, they were always really popular on Long Island, so they, they sell really well. Sell a good amount of Elvis, sell a good amount of Frank Sinatra. We sell a decent amount of R&B stuff, the old stuff, Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes, Earth, Wind, and Fire, Whitney Houston, stuff like that. Oh. So you'll have to come back and we'll do we'll do some radio. Maybe we'll do like we'll feature some artists and albums. Okay. <laughs> All right. All right. All right. So that was our bonus feature. Thank you for listening, Richard Solomon. Uh, Taking care of business, my father's place radio. Also called out of the question at times. We'll see you. Thank you for listening and thank you for sharing the journey with us. If you're if you've enjoyed this, I'm sure you love all the music that that we're there that that's out there. And uh, be passionate, folks. Be passionate. See ya.